Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Matisse in the studio. Along with Helen Burnham and Anne Dumas, my guest Ellen McBreen is a co-curator of Matisse in the Studio at the Museum of Fine Arts Boston. It's there through July 9th. The exhibition examines how objects in Matisse's home and studio informed, and often ended up in, his art. These objects include a simple chocolate pot, a tacky chair, an inexpensive glass vase probably made for the tourist market, and textiles such as Cuba cloth. The exhibition includes about 34 paintings, 26 drawings, 11 sculptures, 7 cutouts, and 3 dozen objects that Matisse owned. From Boston, the exhibition will travel to the Royal Academy of Arts in London. The show's excellent catalog, which was published by the MFA, is available from Amazon for just $34. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. McBreen is an associate professor of art history at Wheaton College. Her most recent book is Matisse's Sculpture, the Pinup in the Primitive, which was published by Yale University Press in 2014. On the second segment, University of Chicago professor Darby English joins me to discuss his new book, 1971, A Year in the Life of Color. But first, Ellen McBreen, after a break. Member previews are on now for a captivating exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan. Louise Lawler, Why Pictures Now, is the first major survey in New York of Lawler's work, which, over the past four decades, has offered a defiant, witty, and feminist analysis of arts production and reception. Join MoMA today at moma.org join and see it first during member previews through Friday, April 29th. The exhibition opens this Sunday, April 30th. Plan your visit today. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, presenting Medardo Rosso Experiments in Light and Form on View Through May 13th. Instrumental in expanding the definition of sculpture for the modern era, Italian artist Medardo Rosso employed innovative casting and modeling techniques in plaster, bronze, and wax, creating surfaces that were sensitive to the transient effects of light and shadow. On view now in its final weeks and featuring nearly 100 works, including sculptures, drawings, and photographs, most of which have never been exhibited outside of Europe, this critically acclaimed exhibition explores Rosso's varied efforts to understand, capture, and manipulate light in his art. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. And we're back. Ellen McBreen, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you, Tyler. Let's start with Matisse's accumulation of all of the visual fuel I mentioned in the introduction. Over the course of his career, is he acquiring things, intending them to end up in paintings, or was he just a creature of what was nearby, and so he painted what happened to be nearby, which happened to be the stuff he and Amelie had, had, had picked up? Well, I think Matisse is someone who collects objects because he falls in love with things that he sees. There isn't a lot of, you know, patterns or intentionality. The uh, objects that he collects are things that he falls in love with. He's interested in them. Some of them will end up in paintings. Some of them will not be depicted directly, but will provide him with design ideas. But he's not necessarily a very deliberate collector. And in fact, early on in life, he was very ambivalent about the whole idea of collecting objects in the first place. He didn't have a lot of resources, a lot of money, you know, early years in Paris. 
uh, any often referred to, you know, collectors as, as kind of, you know, the enemy when his own son became an art dealer, you know, he was initially very disappointed. Um, so I think he was always a little bit wary of this idea of being someone who uh, accumulates uh, luxurious things. And so his collecting and the modesty of the things that he often collected, I think, reflects that. Excepting, of course, that little Cezanne painting he bought. <laughs> <laughs> right. That you're, there's that. Yes. Sure. No, he clearly is he's clearly someone who 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 loves material things, but he is also kind of ambivalent about his love for that. You know, he he has this great you know passage when he's talking to the Swiss writer Pierre Cortillon, like later on in the 1940s, where he looks back and, and says, you know, I was trying to kind of resist the temptation of of, of acquiring things, you know, like you know, he says, you know, to himself, like, don't be an idiot. If you love beautiful things, just go to the Louvre, you know, to indulge your, your, your desire for, for possession. And so, you know, it's, it's part of, it's part of his personality, obviously, to be surrounded by beautiful things and to, to indulge in material luxury. But he's also someone who I think remained ambivalent about that throughout his life. We see some of that ambivalence in, forgive the word, the quality of the objects he acquires and that he then makes use of in making paintings. So before we get to specific paintings and specific objects, which we will do in abundance, could you give us some idea of the character and ordinariness, I guess would be the word, of a lot of the stuff he's, 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 he's buying and using in painting? You know, one of the objects that opens the show is a beautiful silver coffee maker that was a wedding gift to Matisse and his wife, Amélie, um, given to him by a friend, Albert Marquet. And, you know, it's a it's a stunning little silver object that is the kind of thing that you would see in a lot of French homes. And so it's a familiar object. It's not, you know, a luxury object, but it's something that had deep, like personal resonance for Matisse. And so in the very first gallery, you see him going back to that same silver coffee pot again and again, sort of seeing something new in each time that he tries to paint it. So the, the, the objects are definitely modest. And I think one of the things that is so striking about our exhibition is that you can see Matisse kind of transforming the objects and making them do different things in different paintings and bringing out different aspects of them. And who knows, maybe the modesty of the objects, the fact they weren't you know, so luxurious, kind of allowed him that creative freedom. A good example might be a painting in the MFA's own collection, Matisse's superb but rarely seen at the MFA, it must be said, 1924 Vase of Flowers. It's a Nice painting. We'll have an image of it on manpodcast.com. It's an exceptional little thing. And it has four or five different patterns or blocks of colors that all come together on, um, on this green glass vase. Where did Matisse get this vase and why was its point of origin, if you will, important to him? So the vase itself is Andalusian. It's from Spain. And um, we know that Matisse acquired it during a trip to Spain in 1911. And he made a little sketch of it and sent it home to his wife, Amelie. And, you know, we know that it was an object that he associated with that trip. Personally, I think he also associated it with a visit to a very famous exhibition that he saw right before going to Spain. He went to an Islamic art exhibition in Munich in 1911. And then when he goes to Spain, he's also, look, he's also visiting some major Islamic monuments 
you know, the, in Cordoba and Granada. And so I think personally that vase is a reminder of those two, you know, serious exposures to Islamic art and design. And I see that influence, it's very subtle, but in the way that he negotiates all these wonderful patterns in the, the vase of flowers in that MFA painting from 1924, and the way that he's sort of relying on how the, each of the patterns react with one another to create a sense of space. And the patterns, the patterns are things like wallpaper and maybe a carpet on the floor and a textile on a table. Exactly. There's a there's a wonderful, simple pattern of like red and white, you know, horizontal stripes under the window. There's the pattern that the window makes itself with this view, you know, to the sea of Nice beyond. There's the pattern of the wallpaper on the right side of the painting. And then there's the pattern um, on the tablecloth. You know, the, the vase itself is, a, is at the center sitting on the table. And so the vase is at the center of these sort of intersecting blocks of, of decorative pattern. And it's those intersecting blocks of decorative pattern that create, you know, a sense of really like open space. Um, and that's one of the, you know, the hallmarks of say, Matisse's interiors is that through this use of really dynamic patterns, the space that he creates is so suggestive of a kind of broader space than the actual physical size of the canvas. So that's coming to him from a lot of different sources, but I do think that in the case of this painting, the Andalusian vase sort of brings it back to that formative, you know, 1911 time when he's really engaged with Islamic art and design, which Matisse himself said, you know, was an art that helped him to create a sense of plastic space that was much larger than than the, than the physical objects, you know, represented. Yeah, it's a tiny painting, that, not tiny, it's a medium to small size painting, 23 by 30 or so inches, that, that seems bigger. It's also a very anti-cubist painting in the sense that Matisse is putting an object in the middle and your eye ends up in the middle. Everything revolves around that vase, all lines almost end in that vase. But it needs every inch of the rest of the canvas to make that happen. It's not like a cubist painting where it all happens in the middle and then kind of dissolves as you get to the to the outer part. Well, let's pull back out to kind of the broader argument or idea motivating the show. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it goes something like this. Uh, Matisse was not an artist who prowled the studios of other artists, as was Picasso. And he was not an artist who, after, say, the Juan Gris years, you know, which is to say the teens, the to the mid-teens, he was not an artist who spent a lot of time working with and around other painters. His universe, especially after World War I, tends to be fairly self-contained. He's in the suburbs. He's in the South. He's getting information from objects. They almost had to be his objects, right? Is that a fair way to put it? Yeah, do they have to be his objects? Yeah, I mean, is, it kind of one, is that kind of one way to think about how and why the objects were so important to him and why they're in painting after painting after painting? Sure. But I also think that like they were their objects were also ways to negotiate with ideas outside the studio, too, you know, because they were objects that kind of brought him back to places that he went to and other museum exhibitions that he saw and relationships that he had with people outside the studio. So, yes, they were important that they were his objects and they were important that they made up the environment of his studio but they were also kind of like metonyms, you know, if you will, for like relationships that are going on outside the studio, too. Maybe could even argue that his interest in some objects, say African art objects, may have even helped motivate him to go to Africa because he's acquiring African objects in, you know, 05, 06-ish before he'd been. Yeah, 
Yep. And you know, he's not a, <laughs> he's not such a great traveler. So he does, he does, he does go to North Africa like three separate times. And, you know, he goes to Tahiti later in, later in life and he goes to, you know, the trip to, to Munich, to Spain, to Russia. So he's not a homebody. He, he does travel and he is, you know, really motivated to see works of art and see things wherever he goes. But he, I think the way that he lived daily with like, you know, this kind of like regimented schedule and, and having to, you know, make sure that he worked a certain amount of hours and traveling was, did not come naturally to him. And so, you know, he, he, he remarked about, you know, being more comfortable after he comes back from Algeria in 1906, you know, being more comfortable back home in his, in his slippers where he could be more productive. So he's not, he's not closed off to the world at all. He's very curious about different artistic traditions and he has this kind of voracious appetite for, you know, looking at other art, but he's also not somebody who wants to indulge in like the exotic either. And so I think he feels more comfortable working on his own kind of turf, so to speak, but the objects bring him, open him up to to a larger world, like outside of his studio and outside of France. Well, so speaking of those African objects, one of the fun things in the show is you aren't just offering to us object painting here's one here's the other bam let's take the example of a couple of pende am i saying that right yep pende initiation masks from the republic of congo that matisse bought sometime during the collier years the early fauve years and i and and he bought them in in paris i don't mean to suggest he bought them in africa and you argue that they informed his great matisse's great fauve self-portrait of 1906 how, and we'll have images of all of, of both masks and the self-portrait. How do you think the African masks got Matisse or, or ended up in the soup that, that got to that great Fauve self-portrait? Okay, so I, I, I definitely do not want to suggest that the, the great self-portrait that's coming from Copenhagen was something that he did after collecting or first acquiring African art. So he doesn't really acquire his first African sculpture, as far as we know, until 1906. You know, we know that he's having conversations about African art, especially with his friend André Durand, fellow Fauve. But I think that the Copenhagen portrait is something that, you know, he paints sort of while he is warming up to different models for expressing, you know, self and, and portraiture. I do, however, think that it plays more of a significant role in a slightly later painting that he does in, in Couleur called Standing Nude that's coming from the Tate in London. And I do think, I mean, it's hard to say when Matisse acquired this, the Pende mask, because there's two of them actually that we know about that are in the show. But I do believe that like he must have had that mask around the same time. I mean, the, the, the visual correspondence is really striking. And that's a painting that he based on a photograph from a, a magazine called May Model or My Models. He starts working with the photographs. This is Standing Nude you're talking about, just to be clear. Exactly. Standing Nude from, from Tate, which he starts by painting based on not a live model, right? I mean, Matisse is kind of well known for painting the live model over and over again and sort of having to, you know, has a reputation for having to to. to having to have the live model around in order to be inspired. But interestingly enough, in 1906, he's actually painting from photographs of, of models, you know, very kind of flat, two-dimensional, black and white, simple photographs of models. 
in quite sort of like hackneyed poses, you know, not sort of exceptionally interesting or even artistic photographs. And Matisse is transforming those, the kind of visual data he sees in the photographs with ideas, abstract ideas that I think are, are, are coming to him in many ways from, from African art, which 1906 is sort of the beginning of a very intense dialogue with African art. So one of the principal lessons that I think Matisse is learning from African art that is something that is going to inform his practice for the rest of his life is that uh, expression doesn't have to be depicted in order to be really powerful, right? So it's significant that he's collecting a lot of African masks. So the Pende mask that is such a great influence for standing nude you know, the expression in that mask is not one that is, you can read very clearly. Like, you know, this is a a depiction of a face that is happy or sad or is grimacing. But even though the expression is not depicted, you would never say that the Pende mask is expressionless. You know, it's filled with power that comes from how it's designed, its shapes, its, 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 its forms, its colors. And so that shift from depicted expression to expression that's like located in how something is made. You know, Matisse is interested in that idea before he encounters African art, but African art is a great resource for him to sort of work those ideas out. That, that's interesting because if we think of the, the great 1905 portrait of Amelie, no expression, no fa- no facial expression, or, the, or the, is it the Copenhagen yeah, portrait yeah. of Amelie, also no expression? I mean, the, and the Copenhagen portrait of him, you know, is it's is like this inscrutable, <laughs> you know, inscrutable kind of blasé look at us as a spectator, and and but he, it's so powerful, and so there is a there is a portrait where you see him, you know, like a lot of the portraits we have in the show in the in the face section of the of the exhibition, you know, the expression is so powerful, but you can't sort of pin it to anything illustrated. And that's, I think, you know, where where the expressive power of all these other, these traditions beyond Europe, you know, that that was one of the primary lessons. So it's not just African sculpture Matisse is interested in. He becomes interested in African textiles as well. It took him a while to get to African textiles. How does he discover them and what about them do you think caught his interest? So Matisse, like a lot of you know, European people who are interested in uh, African textile are are interested in what were often called African velvets. These these beautiful Cuba textiles that Matisse had um, quite a few examples of, and you know later in life, you know after he'd been collecting them, probably starting around the 1920s, we know that he you know lent two of these textiles to an African art show that took place. In, at MoMA in New York in the 30s. But he writes in a, in a letter to his uh, daughter, Marguerite, you know, that he never gets tired of looking at these, these textiles because of what he, what he calls this sort of instinctive sense of geometry in them. And I think that Matisse had a real love affair for all, for all different kinds of textile traditions. But in the Cuba specifically, the Cuba has this really great rhythmic kind of geometry to them and they seem on well at first glance like you know a very regular system of diagonals and lines but the closer you look at them the more you realize that it's a, it's a it's a much more intuitive system of, of of design one one theory is that these these things are made without like a, pre, a preset design so they're made like as the as the maker weaves like over the over the textile 
there is no sort of like preset system. So I think that Matisse saw in these textiles a principle that is is functional in his work as well, which is that the order in, in a lot of his compositions is much more uh, intuitive than kind of planned out in advance. You're thinking, I think, of the Great Red Interior of 1947 with the dramatic black zigzaggy lines on a red background as close to something planned and random at the same time as Matisse ever gets. Exactly. And that's, that's I, you know, that painting is just such a, I mean, it's such a thrill for us to have this gorgeous late painting, this, you know, from his Mont's interiors in the exhibition. And if you just look at the ways in which the uh, black lines function differently depending upon like where they are in the painting <laughs> you know that's something that i think he also saw in the kuba textiles as a kind of parallel with his own art and so you know he's not obviously copying the kuba textiles it's not a simple question of him sort of like transferring a, a design motif that you see you know repeated in a painting like that interior but it's more of a kind of like a, a principle of making and a principle of, of sort of like a, how to create an intuitive design rather than a set one. I have unintentionally spotlighted a green glass vase that came from um, Spain and textiles from Africa. And I don't mean to suggest at all that this show is mostly looking at how Matisse used things he or Amelie found while they were traveling so let me bring it back to the chocolate pot. So a chocolate pot kind of looks like a, 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 a French press coffee holder, only it has a handle sticking out the side, and it's silver, and the handle is black, and it's probably about as common an object as there could have been in late 19th and early 20th century French households. And wow, does Matisse paint chocolate pots for decades. <laughs> the, same, the same one, presumably. We actually have two in the show. So there are, there are two different ones. So why does that object, and, and, and like you say, multiple iterations of it, hold his interest for as long as it does? Well, I think like with all of the objects that Matisse collected, the reason he could go back to something again and again without being, you know, bored or uninspired by looking at the same thing over and over again is, you know, obviously he has this kind of acuity of vision, so he can see different things in, in the objects at different times of day, at different periods in his life. But he says over and over again, you know, that I'm not interested in just the object. I'm interested in the relationships between objects in my studio. So he, you know, is trying to create what he calls like a sympathy between objects. So in a really early still life, the still life with a chocolate pot that's coming from Paris, an oil painting that is from around 1900, 1902, the chocolate pot, the one that he receives as a gift from Albert Marquet, is in the center of the room. And it is just like pulsating with all the reflections and the light of everything around it in the studio. So I think he's able to go back to these objects because they not only allow him to kind of, and this is a point that Claudine Gramont makes in her uh, essay for our catalog, they allow him to sort of like mark time and the passage of time in his own work, you know, by seeing an object kind of over the course of many years at different times in his, in his work. But I think they also allow him to sort of mark the passage of time in his, in his studio and how certain objects are in relationship with other objects and different light conditions in the, in the studio. How important do you think it was to Matisse that at least the first coffee pot was reflective? 
that it was kind of polished silver. I mean, not like, you know, high polished English silver, but it was bright silver and it reflected colors of the things around it. I think that that was definitely part of its appeal. And that's, you know, if you look at those early delights in which the coffee pot appears, you know, that the the palette uh, of its surface is is what is sort of kind of like dynamically changing. And then the the we have an interesting study, this kind of this this uh, sheet called Still Life and and Heron, Heron studies um, that he makes around 1900. He has like a section of different the same still life that has this coffee pot with a soup tree next to it. And then he has these like sort of watercolor washes along each little, you know, mini rendering of this same still life. And it's, it's really showing that Matisse is kind of like looking at the ways in which the same uh, arrangement of objects takes on a new life, you know, according to the hue that it's, that it's presented in. I'm glad you brought that up because I I think that's, I mean, that's an object I had not, seen before i mean not that i've seen every matisse object or anything but i mean that that just that page in the catalog and we'll have an image of it on manpodcast.com just stopped me in my tracks matisse i don't remember if it's in courtion or in one of the notes of the painter notes of a painter interviews or texts but matisse at some point says that what he loves about chardin uh, at least the chardin still lives is the way chardin could have an object in a painting of one color and how that color was also made to be in everything else in the painting. That that the blue velvet of the interior of a pipe case then managed to make its way into a lemon on the other side of a painting. And it almost looks like this sheet of paper is him playing with that idea and working through that idea. And I think we see that maybe with the chocolate pot. Yeah, he doesn't he doesn't ever say it directly, but certainly when he talks about objects having or creating a sympathy among the objects in his studio you know, he, he must also be thinking of Chardin. Well, speaking of his studio, Matisse loved textiles and not, not, not just the, the Cuba textiles we were talking about a moment ago, but, but, but French and European textiles. Some of that, of course, is, uh, stems from biography. Matisse grew up in Boin, near where the French-Belgian border is now. It was a muddy brown part of Europe that was animated by, um, by textiles, rug making, things like that. And so textiles dominate not just many of the Nice paintings, but, but you know, stay in the work for, for, for many years. And there are some pictures in the, in the catalog and perhaps in the show as well of these studio set type things <laughs> that Matisse is manufacturing using overlaid textiles and how he could kind of cycle through them by pulling a string where did Matisse find and, and accumulate these these European textiles, and how does he employ them, if you will? So we know that some of the um, North African textiles that we have in the exhibition that are called Aitis, uh, they're sort of fretwork screens. There was a, a couple in Paris called the Ibrahims that we know from letters that Matisse acquired some of these textiles from them. We also know that he often, um, for at least one of them, we're not sure which one, probably not one in our show, he actually uh, added his own border uh, to, to the textile himself. And so we know he's very involved in seeking out textile fragments. I mean, he starts his, his, his collecting really with, you know, as, as Anne 
uh, Dumas' show and Hilary Sperling's biography showed, you know, he, he basically starts collecting with, with, with fragments of textiles that he can pick up in, you know, small antique shops in, in, in early 20th century Paris, but then goes on to expand his textile collection. And so the two beautiful Aiti um, that is the focus of the, some of the objects in the studio and theater section are really large textiles that form a kind of decorative screen for so many paintings in the in the 1920s. And he's combining those that, that North African tradition with French and European textiles. And so there's a kind of you know cultural hybridity in the in the theater sets that Matisse is sort of constructing in the studio with all of these different textiles hanging and layered you know behind the model. And uh, there's a really rich you know, rich relationships that are happening across different textile traditions, across different cultures. The show you referenced was the 2005 Matisse Fabric of Dreams, his art and his textiles that listeners may have seen at the Met. You know, Matisse also, you know, was not above using what we would now call spectacularly kitschy objects. Tell me about the 1942 faux Venetian chair. We'll have images on the website and you won't believe them. (laughs) Yes. So, so yes, that chair for someone who re- really had a, a, a had a kind of almost minimalist sense in in late life. You know, you think about the sort of spare clarity of some of his late works, and then he goes around and sort of falls in love with this really over the top chair that has this uh, you know theatrical personality. When can I, can I just jump in for a? a, a... Quick second. Matisse makes his first work with the chair in 42. He keeps making paintings with the chair into the mid-40s. So we're talking about pretty much the same time he's making those spare works you're talking about. So, I mean, Matisse is full of surprises. You know, there, there, there are objects that he falls in love with that, you know, seem kind of like a surprising choice for, for you know, his, an artist of his sensibility. When he is writing to um, Louis Aragon about this chair and basically telling the story about how he you know, he, he fell in love with it. He uses the French expression coup de food. Like he, you know, it's like a, like he sees it and he just kind of has to have it. You know, Louis Aragon, when he talks about it in his book uh, about Matisse, refers to it as a gigolo <laughs> because the, the, the chair is so kind of, you know, over the top. And he makes these great, makes these great drawings from it. He makes a couple of paintings in which the chair uh, is depicted almost like a, you know, almost like a character. And so a lot of his objects become you know, become kind of like uh, humanized in a lot of his works, you know, either through resonance with the models that they're depicted alongside with. And in the case of that uh, over-the-top uh, chair, you know, the chair takes on this this really almost like feline presence in some of the paintings that he makes of it. Yes, the 1946 painting, which I think is the Rokale chair. I'm not sure I'm saying that right. Yeah, Rokai, right. Rokai chair. It, it's it's red with a gold, and the chair is gold with green arms, which it which it sort of was in actuality. Is is feline and female and sensual and and flat and not flat, and it's just. It's also a really ugly chair, so don't don't. <laughs> so Matisse so is able to kind of transform things that you know you and I might think like really, but he does he does find he does find kind of beauty in the unexpected. One of the things that I noticed in going through the catalog is that he would remain enamored of objects for years. Do you think there's any particular reason that the objects that remain in the work for five years, such as the chair? 
stay for so long? I mean, five years is a long time to be obsessed with an ugly chair. <laughs> yeah, I can't. I can't. I, I, I'm thinking that one of the reasons that that Matisse is so attached to these objects, and like I mentioned a little bit earlier, I think it allows him to kind of like see the development of his own work or the differences between one working period and the next, because it allows him to see like the diversity of his own approaches to the same thing. And, you know, Matisse was someone who, you know, early on in his life wanted to uh, distinguish his own, his own practice from, you know, impressionism by trying to paint like the, the duration of something rather than like an instant moment. I think maybe the objects kind of helped him to sort of, show process to to show the duration of 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 being in the studio with the object so it allows him to to express the dimension of time you know which is one thing that 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 the medium of painting is not totally suited to do right to, to sort of express duration of time like other art forms like music or theater and i think perhaps that that's the one one rule that the objects played for him and one of the reason why he goes back to the same objects again and again. Probably a good point at which to ask, how is it that so many of the objects that Matisse had and used are still around to be borrowed for an exhibition such as this? Oh, well, that's thanks to the Matisse family who donated, you know, many of the objects that uh, were in Matisse's studio um, when he died to the uh, Matisse Museum in Nice. And the vast majority of the objects in our exhibition um, are being lent by the Matisse Museum in Nice. So we're really grateful and fortunate to you know, have, have had the team in Nice is really supportive of the project. And then the rest of the objects are coming from private collections. And those are objects that have really you know, not been seen very, very much. And so I think that's going to be a, a real revelation for people, especially people who, who haven't been able to see the collection where it's been, uh, you know, since the family donated it to the museum in Nice. So I'm happy that the exhibition will bring some of these objects to light and will hopefully allow people to uh, get a sort of more like direct sense materially of, of, of Matisse's uh, working process. Um, but I also think that People are often kind of surprised to hear that this artist who is thought of as, as sort of synonymous with, you know, French modernism was an artist who really was looking at all kinds of sources outside of France. Um, and so that, that culture, cultural open-mindedness, that cultural curiosity, the, the hybridity that is, that is modern art, <laughs> you know, this sort of messy experiment of, of kind of mixing up cultures and mixing up genres and mixing up ideas Hopefully the objects will be able to kind of encourage people to think of how how diverse uh, Matisse's sources were. And that's really, I think, you know, one of the most exciting things about 20th century art for me anyway, is figuring out, you know, how many different ideas are, are being absorbed at once. And there's not a one-to-one -one correlation with Matisse. You know, you can't say for sure, like, okay, here's a period where Matisse is looking just at you know, Western Central African sculpture, and that begins in 1906. And then in 1911, he turns to Islamic art, because every encounter that he has with a different way of representing the world, a different way of representing the body, the human face, the space around him, 
every cultural encounter he has, he, he brings those ideas along with him. And maybe it's one of the reasons that this aspect of Matisse's practice, how he's appropriating and borrowing from so many different cultures, is less uh, known because he absorbs these sources like so thoroughly and the works don't wear their appropriations on their sleeve so clearly because he's absorbing them and combining them with, with so many different ideas uh, at once. That's a good transition to the last kind of major idea I wanted to bring up, which was a number of other Matisse shows, including most recently, I guess, the Painter is Sculptor show that was in Baltimore, San Francisco, and Dallas, have looked at how Matisse used his own work within his own work. So his own sculpture within his own painting or how things he was doing in painting then went into his sculpture. Did you have a decision to make at the beginning of this project, whether you were going to play on that field at all or whether you were going to leave that alone? Yes. So we, we definitely, so I came to the project, uh, you know, having finished a book about Matisse's sculpture so I was very keen on um, making sure that sculpture was well represented in the exhibition. And my my co-curator, Helen Burnham, is a works on paper and prints curator. So, you know, we were both kind of naturally interested in other media besides just painting. And we wanted as a kind of side theme for the show to also be able to see all of the interactions among, you know, works on paper, sculpture, and painting, right? Because works on paper in many ways, you know, you see some sort of ideas develop and then you kind of see Matisse pick that up in a sculpture and then that same sculptural treatment of the body, say, in Reclining Nude, which is one of the sculptures we have in the uh, exhibition, you see that same sculptural treatment of the body in uh, paintings from the same period where he's, you know, carving out the surface of the canvas as if it were... Uh, a three-dimensional um, surface. So we definitely were interested in, you know, placing the objects in this kind of ongoing dialogue that Matisse is having between different ways of ways of working. And we wanted also to suggest the idea that uh, Matisse's works, and specifically the sculptures he made, were also objects uh, in his studio that inspired him especially since so many of the paintings that show, for example, the reclining nude um, sculpture that he modeled in 1907, which I think was, is, a, is, a, is a real breakthrough for Matisse in terms of, uh, you know, treating the body in this really um, inventive, like abstract way. So when that sculpture appears later in other paintings, say, for example, in a great painting from 1912, the goldfish and sculpture coming from uh, MoMA in New York, it is then placed in dialogue with other objects in the studio. So it changes, you know, that sculpture changes depending upon what object that, what other objects in the studio it's in dialogue with. And that's a really, that's a really kind of unique and, and interesting moment in the show where you see that one sculpture where if you walk around reclining nude, you know, the relationships among all the forms in the body are sort of dynamically changing as you walk around uh, the sculpture, which as is the case of so many of Matisse's great sculptures from this period. And that dynamic shifting of the body as you, as you move around it in space is reflected then in the paintings that he's making, which pick up on a certain angle or a certain quality of, of the sculpture 
so that in one painting, the sculpture might appear very feminine, very languid. And then in another still life that features that same reclining nude sculpture, this, the sculpture takes on a much more uh, burly kind of like masculine presence. It's it's the 1907 reclining nude Aurora. It has 83 names. Sculptures are, uh, sculpture is one of just the really great things. It, it was understood immediately in Paris how important it was when Picasso in the 29-30-31 period when he's kind of trying to draw Matisse back into dialogue, when he's trying to draw him out of Nice and back into uh, competition, if you will. One of the sculptures Picasso makes is uh, is, is a Picasso take on, on that 1907 sculpture. It's a, a really important thing that's kind of been... Yeah, I, the, you saw that sculpture in the in the Picasso sculpture show? It's like, it's all it's all sort of like serpentine and, yep, and kind yep. of tubular, yes. I think I think that was the first time that sculpture has ever been in the United States. I think I remember being told. I, I, think, I think you're right, and it's so funny. I was like, oh my god, here is here is Picasso trying to get at, I mean, a bunch of things in the reclining nude. But like, I think one of the things that he saw in it was, you know, how in reclining nude you have this kind of like heavy material body that's kind of like bounded to, you know, to its base. And and in a reclining nude, you know, is kind of like on the ground, but it has this incredible visual like buoyancy, so that it it it's like you know almost like lifting up from its base, kind of like a you know sort of defying gravity. It's yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a really really important sculpture. Picasso knew that the two most important Matisses were the 1907 painting and the 1907 sculpture, and he never forgot it. He kept riffing on them into the 1950s. Um, they're in his Matisse memorial paintings, of course, Women of Algiers. Ellen McBreen, thanks so much for talking with me. Thanks for having me, Tyler. Often referred to as America's jewel box, the Kimball Art Museum is celebrated around the globe for its iconic architecture and collection of masterpieces. Important paintings by Duccio, Fra Angelico, Michelangelo, Caravaggio, Poussin, Velasquez, Monet, Picasso, and Matisse, as well as international antiquities, shine in the pearly light of the Louis Kahn Design Galleries. A second building, designed by famed architect Renzo Piano, opened in 2013 and provides space for special exhibitions, dedicated classrooms, and an auditorium with excellent acoustics for music. Visit KimballArt.org for more information. Join us at the Getty to explore the visual, verbal, and sonic experiments of the concrete poetry movement in the exhibition Concrete Poetry, Words and Sounds in Graphic Space. Using visual patterns of words or letters and other typographical devices, the shape of these poems convey as much or more than the words themselves. With works from contemporary poets and artists such as Augusto de Campos and Ian Hamilton Finlay, Concrete Poetry, Words and Sounds in Graphic Space is on view now through July 30th. Visit getty.edu to plan your visit. Welcome back. My next guest is University of Chicago professor Darby English. His new book is 1971, A Year in the Life of Color. It was published by University of Chicago Press. The book, which was published by University of Chicago Press, considers two exhibitions— Contemporary Black Artists in America at the Whitney Museum of American Art, and The Deluxe Show, a racially integrated exhibition of abstract art presented in a renovated movie theater in Houston's inner-city Fifth Ward. English finds that many black artists of the period were less interested in a specifically so-called black aesthetic 
than they were in a cultural interaction across racial lines. He points to color and how these artists used it as a key way in which they engaged other artists. Amazon offers the book for $38. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. Darby English, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks for having me, Tyler. What are the two 1971 exhibitions you picked to examine, and why are they important now, amazingly, 46 years later? 46 years seems like a long time. <laughs> it is a long time. Well, but the, chronologically speaking, the first of the two exhibitions, uh, Contemporary Black Artists in America, which was mounted at the Whitney Museum of American Art in the, in the old 75th Street and Madison location in New York City, a, a survey exhibition of then- contemporary work by by a range of, of African-American artists based in a number of different locales in, in the U.S. and a single non-black artist who was a woman called Ellen Zimmerman who contributed a sculpture. And the, the exhibition grew out of a, a series of attempts by the Whitney to respond to pressure, considerable pressure on, on the museum and not the, and not the Whitney alone by the Black Emergency Cultural Coalition, which was at the time founded by or uh, headed by the painter Benny Andrews and Cliff Joseph, with a lot of help from Henri Ghent, who was at the time affiliated with the Brooklyn Museum in a kind of outreach um, a coordination capacity. And uh, by far, the, uh, the Whitney exhibition, the survey exhibition, was the largest of its many efforts to, to respond to the BECC's demands for, uh, for redress in the face of a longstanding exclusionist uh, practice in 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 American art, art museums, but especially important at that point was another branch of the BECC's, BECC's effort to get New York institutions uh, as a as a cluster, really, to a, to a, to answer for the Metropolitan's highly controversial Harlem on My Mind ex- exhibition late in 1968. The other show was called the Deluxe Show. It was organized by Peter Bradley, part-time director of the Pearls Gallery, associate director of the Pearls Gallery, on the Upper East Side, and full-time color painter. A color field is not quite the word, but he was a he was is very much a, a painter of, of color, an abstract painter of of colors, who also happens to be a black guy. <laughs> so he's a painter painter of color who uses a lot of color. That will be a theme <laughs> that throughout our conversation. Will, will be a theme. <laughs> that 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 my registration of that coincidence is probably the single most important conceptual event uh, to occur early in the framing of this book project and uh, he was Peter was approached by by the Demeniel family by John Demeniel who actually flew to New York to ask him to organize an exhibition of black art uh, an invitation that Peter just actually reflexively refused to accept and offered uh, instead to John Demeniel an exhibition of the best art Peter could get his hands on and after some consideration um, it, that in, that counteroffer was accepted by the Dimineo family who got to work with Peter and their curator uh, Helen Winkler now Helen Fostick putting the show together and in, in a, a remarkably short amount of time they assembled one of the most spectacular uh, exhibitions of hard edge abstraction that I'm aware of in that period or any other and they happened to do it with an interracial cast of characters both creators and and artists presented and they happened also to locate the exhibition in in one of the most blighted areas of Black Houston, a completely disused movie house called the Deluxe, uh, located on, on Lyons Avenue in Houston, Texas. I came across the shows somewhat by accident, and uh, as soon as I did that, I, I had a question, which is why don't I know about these already? It wasn't that long ago that I learned about them, and I, I was well into a career as a historian of modernism and, and American art, and they were immediately 
to me salient events in both in, in both of those historical categories uh, about which um, too few people knew anything at all. So before we talk about the two shows and some of the artists in them, I want to bring up one phrase you use because I think it's likely to come up. That phrase is black representational space. It's a phrase you've used before and I think coined because when I looked for usages before your 2013 book, How to See a Work of Art in Total Darkness, I couldn't find any. That was actually 2007. But, oh, yeah. 2007. Sorry. Yeah. My, okay. my my printing, I guess, is 2013. So as, as the phrase black representational space is likely to come up again, how do you define it? Yeah, loosely, for for one thing, and probably the most the most important thing for people to know is that I, I define it loosely. It's it's something that I I mean I it's a term that, that I find fitting for any situation, historical or contemporary, where things have been orchestrated in order to gather up and focus and concentrate black cultural production, black cultural life, black political circumstance, stuff made by black people, black thought, you know, whatever, and to the exclusion of of other, you know, cultural adjacencies and, and racial adjacencies, which, which, as we all know, are constantly being engaged by, by black cultural producers, whether they're musicians or critics or historians or, or painters, but are too rarely included in the stories of the production of, 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 of what cultural producers make and too rarely included in, in histories of, of that making, which, as we know, goes back centuries. It's a term that I coined in order to point to this historical tendency, uh, which remains to homogenize the space or to treat the space as it were as though it were homogenous as as though it were not the product of of countless numbers of collaborations both visible and invisible between black and non-black uh, historical actors i'm a, i'm a realist i suppose in the sense that i i've never i've never fully been able to think of 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 black art as a legitimate way of talking about or treating you know about any kind of visual production because because all art comes from someplace and uh, I, I I have a I guess I have a roving eye in, in, in the sense that I'm, I'm, I'm often curious to know what were the non-black influences that made this this black art, as we say, necessary, and that allowed people to make sense of it once it happened, and it now needed to be analyzed, interpreted, described, and so forth. I have I have very very little tolerance for narratives of art and culture that treat groups as though they exist um, in pure separation, and my work reflects that lack of tolerance. <laughs> let's let's say that's probably why, after introducing the two nineteen seventy one exhibitions as crucial, you jump into Ed Clark, in particular into a nineteen fifty seven Ed Clark painting at the Art Institute of Chicago, and you point to that painting as being pivotal and use it in Clark's production as a way of leading into the nineteen seventy one shows. What is that nineteen fifty seven painting, and how is Clark and his oeuvre important in getting to to those two shows? Well, let me say first that what what made Ed Clark's painting speak to me first was was its what I take to be its the centrality of its radicalism, not only to modernist painting and the story of modernist painting that that, that we have inherited and have told again and again and refurbished and in some cases dismantled, but also to the story that the, and all all the stories that we tell about what black artists have 
been up to um, in, in their pursuit of representation, either in the artistic or in the, in the democratic sense, you know, for the entire the entire duration of modernity. It's, it seems crucial to, to both of those narratives, which are rarely helixed um, or combined with one another, both of which have managed to leave Clark to the side. When Clark is brought in, and one of the other things that I do, it's, it's not only the work itself and Clark's production that I, I use to, as you say, lead to 1971. It's also the the means that historians and curators have taken to position Clark historically and, and critically, which have tended to take to take the modernism out of the painting in order to centralize or or concentrate the blackness, which isn't much there. Like when you get down to dealing with the work for itself, it's there as a central element of Ed's experience and narrative of self, but it's it's just not a it's just not a concern that he has had as a painter, nor has it ever been. And so the appropriation of of, of Clark by uh, what's called African American art history in order to do its its project, in order to do its work, you know, it struck me mainly because it as because of what seemed like an almost almost willful misconstrual of the things that actually concerned uh, Clark in a primary sense, which which were making paintings that would contribute something to the the ongoing stream of modernist production in the medium of painting, about which he's had a great deal to say, much of it very eloquent, all of it very committed. And uh, he's made these statements both visually and verbally. And what little historical treatment we do have of, of, of Clark is just, it's, it shows something like... <laughs> total disinterest in the parts of his discourse that have actually been about his art. And, and instead of that, it's um, given primacy to some pretty starkly uh, like non-aesthetic and uh, peripheral matters to do with, you know, the existence of janitors in the building where he once made painting. Janitors who were probably black and whose blackness must have somehow been kind of evanescing out of the bodies of janitors into the paintings, giving us you know, a kind of racial anchor to use to read them. I mean, it's just unbelievable stuff that as you read it, like when you read it in the texts that perform this kind of interpretive work, you, you know, it's hard not to be incredulous at critics. Uh, actually, I mean, it, it's, it, it's not difficult to imagine drafts of published critical writing that, that make this kind of move and make these kinds of claims in total sincerity, but, you know, edited considered published versions of the, of this kind of criticism and the repetition and their citation and their reproduction in other in other idioms at a certain point this gets to be a problem that needs to be addressed and that's that's what i that's what i myself am, am using clark and the the kind of scant art history uh, on on clark to uh, to illustrate We'll have an image of the 1957 untitled painting that opens that chapter on manpodcast.com and hopefully another a couple more clerks to one of the great pleasures of the book, but especially this chapter is your parentheticals, which are even more fun if the reader thinks of you as having your eyebrow raised as high as you can raise it while typing them. <laughs> <laughs> so 1971, we, 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 we come, you, you mentioned at the, at the beginning of the show that the 1971 shows follow remarkably closely, given how long it takes exhibitions to happen now, the Met's infamous Harlem on My Mind show. To remind viewers, that Met show sought to engage Black America, and particularly Harlem, but not with Black art, 
even though it was at an art museum, which is to say it was an exhibition not of black art so much as it was an acknowledgement of black existence through archival pictures and ethnographic style wall displays. This all sounds bizarre. It's because it was. And so the Whitney decided to do their show in part because of the engagement of and maybe even pressure, if, 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 if that's the right word. That's definitely the right word. Yeah, of the Black Emergency Cultural Coalition, the group you mentioned. And and the Whitney went along with the BECC's demands um, in all but one key way. What was that key way? The key way was they, they did not hire a Black curator to join the full-time staff of the museum. And instead, the show was done by, by a white curator. Called Robert Doty, also known as Mac, to insiders in the field. So... You opened up the exhibition archive, researched its planning, its floor plans. There's a great image in the book of, of a very tidy floor plan that you that you reproduce. What was your takeaway from the show? What what stood out and why? The central, what, what would become the central discovery that the floor plan opened me on to was very simply the way that Doty positioned abstraction, which is the works of abstract art by black people in the exhibition, which was to say that he, he put them in incredibly salient locations where they would have like not only maximal visual impact, but where the indication would be quite clear to anybody who knew how to, how to discern the difference in orientation and ambition between an artist who uses imagery uh, to make a visual statement and, and an artist who uses no imagery at all, but rather something more completely formal to make a visual statement. He positioned these these works so that not only that the difference would be discerned, but that it would be felt. That the chord, not a strong chord, but a very real chord, a, a pulsing chord of abstraction, of, of kind of black artists making the non-obvious choice, in fact, making the dangerous choice, there was a resonant one in the contemporary black America of being represented. And that this was also a way to make a statement that this was not an inaccurate picture of black America as artists were both representing and I guess representing it in, in the sense of delegation, but also in the sense of depiction. This was not an, an inaccurate portrait, even though it, it may have struck one by the absence of a kind of total representational situation, a totally figurative situation, or a totally ex explicitly political situation, that a truthful representation of what contemporary black artists in America were up to would be a very diverse picture. It would be aesthetically diverse, it would be politically diverse, it would be emotionally and affectively diverse. And this diversity was a problem. <laughs> and it was clear to me from the floor plan, which was the only visualization of, of what the exhibition comprised, encompassed, until much, much, much later in the process. It was clear to me from the floor plan that, that the use of abstraction to indicate the presence of difference within black culture was a strategy that Doty had devised. And this sense was corroborated very quickly but by his uh, his catalog essay, which I actually didn't read until after I saw the floor plan. In, in the catalog essay is a very strident defense of, of black artists who dared to differ from the norm within the black art world. And I thought... Between these two moves, between the, ver the, the very strident positioning of, of abstraction within the show, from the very beginning, in, in place of a narrative text explaining things, there was instead along a very, very long wall directly in front of the elevators where exhibition experiences at that Whitney used to begin, a gigantic a geometric abstraction by Al Love, Al Loving announcing the theme of disruption, as it were, from the very beginning in an extremely 
unambiguous way. So I thought between that and the way that the articulations and the in in the catalog essay go, very passionate defense, very very comprehending and empathetic a representation of the complexity inside the black art world at that moment. Uh, I thought that this guy this guy really got it. And you know, when you turn to the art history of the show, such as it is, it's a completely one-sided situation where Dodi is villainized by every single party to the conversation, which is exactly how it was before the show even opened. As soon as it was known that, that the curator of the exhibition wasn't going to be a black person, very, very heavy protesting began. Artists were pulling out. Like artists whose, whose, whose aesthetic commitments would have been well served by participating and, and as it were, being, being championed by Dodi such as Jack Whitten and other people, Bill Williams did the same thing. Maybe I think there were, I, I want to say there were 11 or 15 signatories to the withdrawal letter, which was published in art form the season that the exhibition opened. Yeah, but they, they, they elected to stand with their fellow artists on, on the picket line, having every right to do so. That was, the, that was, for many people, that was the more important move. Even though this was an enormously rare and special opportunity to be seen, the priority was on 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 you know on, on the political project, or, or the stress I should say fell on the on the political project of the moment, and so this meant that a you know a number of a very committed modernist uh, painters and sculptors didn't uh, participate. Meanwhile, in Houston, the exhibition that ends up happening there, the Deluxe Show, is kind of opposites from from the Whitney Show. Whereas in New York, you had almost all black artists, uh, one white one white artist and a white curator, and in Houston, it's it's kind of flipped. You have a multiracial show organized by a black artist, by a black man, who, who I guess was was an artist, but I'm not sure oh, yes. he, was, he was approached That's... because he was an artist. Uh, I, I, uh, yeah, I, 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 won't, I won't venture a, a, a perfect recollection of, of the case. Peter was known as an artist first, but because of his, because of his function as a, and because of his role really as a, as a, as a gallery professional at, at Pearls, he was offered the rare, was a kind of rare specimen in, in that he was a, an artist with a managerial sensibility, or, or at least with a, a managerial identity, who was known for, uh, for his connections. And so... In a way, he was he was a perfect organizer because he was both both inside the world that had, that he occupied and in a position to, to make choices about what to pull together and and to execute it in a fairly efficient manner. So, other than the racial makeup of the artists in the show, how was the Houston show different in its aesthetics and address? And there are installation views of this show, unlike unlike the Whitney show, and you included I think four of them in the book. Yeah, there, there are installation views of the Whitney show, and, and there always were. I just uh, they just weren't made available to me uh, um, until it was uh, too late to put them in the book. But they can be seen. But it, it was uh, different in count, countless ways. It, it was non-institutional. The funding and other forms of support that were provided by the Dominiels were were provided before they had established the themselves as you know as a foundation even and long before the collection that we know as a publicly visitable collection had had been established the scale of the operation at deluxe was completely different the location well outside of the art center part of houston and squarely in the black ghetto in the fifth ward that made a crucial difference as well there are very important evocations around the the use of a movie theater, which was a place that the community, even though it had long been offline as a movie theater, it was it was a place that members of the of the, of the community would associate with viewing and looking and pleasure, 
in a kind of reflexive way. So, so the hardness of the art, difficulty of, of the art itself, like mainly very hard edge painting and sculpture, would it in a way have been mollified by the approachable uh, character of, of the space itself. It's also different in, in that, unlike the Whitney show, which was offered to the the art world as such, I mean, the New York art world for sure, but, you know, an, an institution of that augustness is, is obviously making all of its contributions or, or all of its offerings, all of its appeals to the, to the art world in toto. Peter conceived deluxe really as something that, that children would, would access more directly and in, 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 almost more completely than grown-ups. So it, 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 while it was very much the result of, of art world activity, Houston art world activity, it, it, was, a, it was a gift that Peter was, was, was really offering to the children of, of the Fifth Ward, in whom he had a, a very beautiful kind of confidence that the, like what he called the lightness and the airiness of, of the work would have a it would have an immediate appeal it would be understood immediately by children which was an interesting framing for him to to, to make because it it contains an implicit acknowledgement that 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 art itself had long since moved away from the kind of painting and sculpture that really turned him on and turned on his neighbors and friends like Olitsky and Poons and Noland and you know Mike Steiner and Craig Kaufman and and Bill Williams and, and Jack. Actually, Whitten wasn't in that show, but you know, Al Loving sent a, a version, in fact, of, of, of the Whitney piece to Houston. These guys were on the outs. You know, Greenberg, you know, who was involved in the installation, he flew to Houston for a day and a half and, and helped. He was against the ropes and, and the painters and the sculptors that, that he championed and, and, and who, who basically worked towards his approval. These were becoming increasingly invalid ways of making art. So there's, there's, there's a lot of risk in, in, involved. And it made sense for Peter to articulate goals for his exhibition that uh, targeted another audience because, because the art world had turned toward conceptual things, post-studio things. The earthwork was um, in everybody's mind at this point. You know, so it, it, it was a good time to be thinking about other ways to make modernism useful, you know, other ways to make the impacts thought to be intrinsic to successful works of modernist art, uh, like other ways to make them take hold. Peter looked to children, and I think, I think he had a point. There's a serious impracticality in this, in this line of thinking of his. And it's something that I admire a lot, actually. I think the, in the impracticality of the notion, the kind of absurdity almost of, of the notion that children would walk in and look at a Virginia Jaramillo painting and get it immediately. In the absurdity of, of that claim, I think, is a registration of just how intently and how seriously he believed in the, in the capacity of this work to open minds that were really threatened by closure at every turn. And I just, you know, there is, there is for me a, an incredible, an incredibly moving beauty in the thinking that, that went into not only making the show, but putting it there and standing behind his, his commitment that it had really important work to do, not on those people, but, but in those people's experience. There's a great picture in the book of a full page from the Houston Post of two children standing in front of a painting by Ed Clark, clearly caught up in its, uh, it's a very large painting, it's oval, um, clearly caught up in it. So if the project of your book was in part to, to recapture, bring back these two shows as successful enterprises. Did you conclude the book with a simple assertion of, of, of rediscovered success, revisionist success, or did you have another way of wrapping it up? 
well, success, no, it's not, success is not, or is not something that I assume that when I set out to, to, to write uh, for readers and I to do a lot of reading, uh, writing for myself that I, that, that I think I bring a lot more, I bring a lot more confidence to the beginning and I, I have, I have a lot more confidence at the, at the end. I have no idea what kind of what kind of things people are ready to recapture in this moment. But what I want most for people to find in these pages is some validation for what remain what may remain of, of, of the optimism about what can come when cultures and subcultures mix along lines that society doesn't predict or approve. Can I, can I jump in there real quick? Do you think Glenn Ligon's drawings from the 2000 Walker residency do that, pull that together? That's, that's a different accomplishment. I think, uh, I think Ligon's project, the Walker, what makes it cognate with, with the effort that, that the, that the deluxe show was involved with is the aspect of kind of handing a difficult kind of representational exercise over to children and and doing it with with minimal worry or concern about what they will do to the subject matter but in fact giving it to them in a spirit of what they do is fine because because they are what comes next we don't get to control the the symbolic impacts of our cultural property forever they change and those those changes are often best registered in how our cultural property is received and taken up and addressed by people who are either not of our culture or not of our time. And you know, there's a kind of a, a willing self-extension or a willing surrender of, of one's own volition when it comes to sort of my cultural property, which in which I find an optimism and a tolerance and a humanity that feel to me increasingly rare in discussions of difference and representation. That's what I see Peter's project at Houston and Glenn's project at, at Minneapolis are having in common. In terms of what I want the book to succeed at, I'd say I, probably too many things to list, but I, you know, I, I, w- I would probably come back to this notion that, that there might be a, you know, uh, that some validation of optimism in the attempt to recover a sense of where these, these artists and, and where their advocates were coming from. It's a matter of thinking like the historical agents in order to test our own capacity to to expand and, and to go beyond what's safe and what's given and, and what's actually, in fact, certain to succeed. The thing about these shows is that they were neither certain to succeed nor successes as, as such. They may succeed in retrospect under the pressure of a critical gaze like the one that I bring to it or you know, a certain kind of another kind of investigator might bring to it. But they they did not work in their own time. The Whitney was received as a as a was it was regarded publicly by by all but a very few number of respondents as a complete failure. Doty was basically chased to the farm in in, in the wake of this exhibition, and Deluxe wasn't seen by anybody. Like it, it it could barely even register as a failure because it basically didn't happen. As far as the art world is concerned, it didn't happen. Time Magazine had a critic lined up to fly from Washington to, to do the show um, when, when that critic was based in, in Washington, and he got sick and, and never made the trip. And there were no New York reviews of the exhibition. The most extensive critical treatment it, it received were, were from local papers in Houston and from an architectural trade magazine, which marveled at the space, uh, at the renovation of, of, of the space from a completely derelict and, and kind of beshambled old Art Deco movie house into a into a pristine white cube, which was done by a black contracting firm in Houston. But the successes of these exhibitions could not have been more local 
they could not have been more local. So to confer success upon them retroactively by means of historical analysis would be uh, disingenuous. That's, that's not at all what I'm trying to do. Darby English, thanks so much. Thank you, Tyler. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.